Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Mike Munger, chairman of political science and professor of economics at Duke University and longtime Econ Talk guest and Econ Live contributor. Mike, welcome back. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Our topic today is middlemen, although that term, of course, I suppose is out of fashion. I guess it's middle people, but I think for technical reasons, we should probably refer to them as middlemen regardless of uh, sex. Is that uh, your preference as well? the convention that it is for, for these brief purposes gender neutral uh, tell us about middlemen they don't have a very good historical uh, reputation I think most people see middlemen as um, making money and providing nothing yeah I'd, I'd wanted to try to uh, define it first and I think middleman is someone who buys cheap and sells dear without improving the product which sounds um, socially reprehensible. Just nothing of value there, and all this person does is is skim off a a bit a bit for him or herself. In fact, eliminate the middleman has become a watchword of that. That's that fair trade coffee. All sorts of uh, social movements are based on let's eliminate the middleman. With the idea being that if. They're making some money. If we could get rid of that person, obviously it'll be cheaper and we'll all be better off. It's entirely empty what they do after all because they buy cheap and sell dear without improving the product. Now, most people would also say that middlemen transport, maybe repackage. You know, there's some things that they do. So possibly there's some kind of profit that they've earned, but it's always far less than what they actually get. And so we hate them. We hate them all. And yet? We live in a society where it's hard to imagine not being, not, not having middlemen. One of the things that interested me about this, or two, two ways, so I, the, what I wanted to talk about today, Russ, was kind of at the confluence of two entirely unrelated things. One was the financial problems that we're having uh, in New York, Tokyo, pretty much everywhere, because those people buy and sell shares. They obviously don't take possession of the commodities that they trade. They certainly don't take possession of the companies whose equities they trade. They don't take possession of the homes whose mortgages they trade. And yet, they're trying to buy cheap and sell dear. So those all brokers of that kind are middlemen. And I'll mention that we're taping this on October the 20th of 2008. To put this in some historical perspective, carry on. So that's one point, the idea that that much of the financial world is people who are, quote, shuffling paper around, doing nothing productive. And, of course, financiers for decades and centuries have had a bad reputation because of that. The other thing is that I just happened to uh, – I mean, many people Google their own name, but I, I Googled the ancient version of my name. My last name is Munger, M-U-N-G-E-R. And I knew that that was uh, a kind of phonetic spelling of the old Anglo-Saxon word monger, M-O-N-G-E-R. And a monger is someone who buys and sells things, perhaps illicitly, maybe a smuggler. So there's a little bit of an illicit uh, flavor to it. But it turns How out appropriate. 
I'm not shot. denying that. Cheap shot. Go ahead. <laughs> um, the earlier version of it, though, in Anglo-Saxon times, was Mank Gear, M-A-N-C-G-E-R-E. And it turns out that in several old Anglo-Saxon uh, texts, descriptions, psalters, uh, basically there was a kind of caste system in Anglo-Saxon times, both in Europe and in England. And when you when you look at these old English writings, they talk about the Mankir or Munger as a as a as a type, as an archetype, like the the Miller and the the Mercer, uh, the you know, a trader in silks, or uh, the the pig farmer, or the cooper, the person who builds barrels. And the interesting thing about to me about the Mankir was I, I found this text written about 1050, that is 1050, nearly 1,000 years ago. And I wanted to read it briefly. So this is, this is from uh, an old manuscript called uh, Cotton Tiberius. And the introduction of the Mank gear goes like this. I say I am useful to the king and to eldermen and to the rich and to all people. I ascend my ship with my merchandise and sail over the sea-like places. I, I just, this sounds like a Monty Python thing. I, I sail over the sea-like places. <laughs> yes, you'd be wearing some kind of outfit. Keep going. <laughs> so I, I, I ascend my ship with my merchandise and sail over the sea-like places and sell my things and buy dear things which are not produced in this land. And I bring them to you here with great danger over the sea. And sometimes I suffer shipwreck with the loss of all my things, scarcely escaping myself. And the interlocutor asks, well, what things do you bring to us? Skins, silks, costly gems and gold, various garments, pigment, wine, oil, ivory, or a calcus, which is brass, copper and tin, silver, glass, and such like. Will you sell your things here as you brought them here? And he answers, I will not, because then what would my labor benefit me? I will sell them dearer here than I brought them here, that I may get some profit to feed me, my wife, and children. And this was intended as both a defense and an indictment of, of the Mank gear. And it's a thousand years ago, That's and I amazing. think it contains all the elements that I would want to talk about, about why middlemen are important. Because it, invo- it invokes risk, it invokes transportation, and it raises this sort of unsavory element of, well, why aren't you going to sell it for what you paid for it? It's amazing. Uh Probably teach a course around that text. I, I, I just the, the more I read it, the more wonderful I thought it was. Plus, it has my name in it, so that's a, that's hey, a benefit. Hey. Do, do you know the roots of the phrase? Do you uh, know uh, what the uh, origin of the word the, the mank gear is? It's a it, it it it's someone who trades or exchanges. But you think that's the actual literal meaning, or do you think that's what it's come to mean? That was all I could find in the the Anglo-Saxon. Text apparently the first time it was used it was around eight hundred or nine hundred. Because the root monk can mean missing. Uh, I just wonder if it really means something like you know missing ethics or <laughs> some. You know, it's basically. Well, thank you very much. I'm it's glad basic, we had this talk. It's basically a slander. It yeah. <laughs> means. Well, something. no, it's, it's remember a defense against slander is truth. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. So it isn't actually a slander. It may just be an, unf- an infelicitous description, description. Let me ask one more etymological law question before we go on to the economic substance. There, there's a phrase uh, in, in England which is a costermonger. And do you know what that coster part means? I don't. I always thought it meant someone, like you said, a, a, someone who 
maybe runs a stall, an informal trader. Um, but it could, and I don't, and I, and I, your use of the word monger, I thought now was a corruption of that longer phrase. We'll, we'll look into this etymological um, history uh, later on. Let, let's carry on with the economics. Well, so the I got to thinking about the the, the two parts of this, where the. I suppose someone who represented themselves as becoming wealthy by uh, someone who represented themselves by becoming wealthy by trading stocks would say, "Yeah, but I took all these risks, and you know, I could have lost it, and so I, I somehow earned it. Plus, I made a market. I provided liquidity, and we basically have the same defenses now as as we ever did for middlemen." So I, I wanted to raise one more piece here. I mean, we're just we're setting things up here at the beginning. There's a, a, a famous old article by a guy named R.A. Radford. It was published in Economica in 1945. And it's called The Economic Organization of a POW Camp. It's one of my favorite articles for pedagogical purposes. And briefly, for your readers who haven't seen it, for your listeners who haven't seen it, the setup is this. Prisoner of War Camp, 1943-1944, and some uh, food and some things are provided, some necessities are provided by what he rather... Uh, delicately calls the detaining power because the uh, the Germans were the one who had the the English prisoners in a prisoner of war camp. But the main thing that they had that provided them with any sort of excess and in some cases the, the ability to live was Red Cross packets. And everybody got exactly the same Red Cross packet and it had a tin of beef and it had a tin of carrots and some chocolate and some cigarettes and uh, toilet paper, uh, maybe 10 or 12 different things. So everybody had precisely the same endowments. But everybody had different preferences. They, they, they liked these things in different ways. So it's a, it's a fascinating experiment in exchange, in, in trading. As you point out, some people don't smoke. Some people are vegetarian. Uh, there, there were members of the camp who didn't eat beef. Uh, and just to, to set the stage a little bit more, what, what I love about that article, and I too have, have taught it in the past, is um, – he talks about how the institutions of trade emerge without any top-down uh, supervision. And, and to the, not only not without any top-down supervision, but often with the resentment of almost everybody who's participating in the trade because they had this idea that they were middlemen, which, which ties it back to our topic. So the, it, it's almost – it's completely involuntary in the sense of being top-down, and it's even with the resentment of the participants who say – well, you know, I understand that each of these exchanges is voluntary, and that's the, that's the paradox that I really wanted to try to focus our discussion on, was each of us thinks that each of the exchanges that we make is voluntary, which, which it means is. that I must be made better off by it. Correct. And yet I have this sense that someone is exploiting me. Correct, yeah. So how can we resolve that? And we, we, we create this boogeyman, the middleman, and the, the, the nice thing about the Radner article is that he is the Redford article is that he is the perfect archetype. <laughs> it's even a priest. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's true. Yeah. Right. So the, there's there's a he calls him the itinerant padre of, of I think he was an Anglican priest who on getting a Red Cross packet went around and made voluntary exchanges and didn't misrepresent no no fraud actually delivered everything that he promised and after a day ended up with two Red Cross packets plus a little more. Right. He'd, he'd kept his capital. He'd, he'd, yeah. By judicious trading, he had somehow managed, and of course, by a, a superior knowledge of the prices, 
yep. in the camp, uh, the dispersion of prices. Because there's no no one's setting prices. Everybody's doing the best they can. The prices emerge from the trades of the different participants and depend, as you say, on the preferences and the endowments of these folks uh, and their packages that they receive. So He left every person that he exchanged with better off. But he ended up with more stuff. He doubled it. <laughs> So the, Something the, must be wrong. There's a fundamental paradox here yeah. somewhere. Now, is it that he didn't actually make those people better off? I don't think we can say that that's right. I don't think that they were defrauded, each of them, on exchanging two tins of carrots for a little packet of treacle or you know molasses candy, actually just didn't like the carrots. The question is, why is it then that we have this idea that somebody got ripped off? Who was it? Well, one thing it points to, which I love, and we'll get into the mechanics of the trading in a little bit, and the, literally what the middleman's doing that's that's unseen, but that is – I said unseen, not obscene. <laughs> unseen, but, but valuable. One of the th- real beauties of this is that it illustrates how trade is not a zero-sum game. Now, by zero-sum meaning – Every person who gains must be offset by someone who loses. So here, here's a really beautiful example. And I, by the way, I didn't, I didn't think about this when I, I just reread the article before our conversation, and I missed this insight that you've just provided. It's really extraordinary. By definition, the amount of stuff in the camp is set. Fixed. All the trading does is rearrange it. So by definition, it's a zero-sum game. And in fact, you could argue it's a slightly negative-sum game because – you know, the physical handling of the stuff yeah. can degrade it a little bit. In, in a material sense. Yeah, in a physical physical um, uh, second law, I think. Is it second law of ther- thermodynamics? It, but, uh, beats me. Maybe it's the first law. Uh-huh. But anyway, basically the amount of stuff is fixed except for – if anything, it gets smaller. Yeah. You know, as the cigarettes are passed around, some Which of the you tobacco – You have to walk around. There's all this friction. Is, right. And so on the surface, trading is just a waste of time. Because be. all it does it. is move stuff around. It's it, it's really a very, of course, like you're a very deep thinker to bring this up as an example of a middleman. It's a beautiful thing. We have an exact. We actually have middlemen in the story. But what I like about it is that the very idea of this trading in the camp shows the seeming harmfulness of trade, which yep. is that it doesn't do anything. It just moves stuff around. Yep. And yet, as you point out, every single person traded in hopes of improving their lot, presumably almost everyone who did trade did improve their lot. I, I think that has to be true. At least the premise, remember, it's a priest. It's not that he's dishonest. <laughs> yeah, he has the, a reputation to maintain. He, he could have been an imperfect priest. Okay, but, but, but the, there's, there's nothing no in the story to that hints at that, yeah. that there was fraud. I mean, you know, suppose he'd emptied one of the tins and it, there's no, there's no fraud, fraud or yeah. misrepresentation. Right, that would be one way. I mean, there's two ways... That he could have enriched himself at other people's expense, which is a, a zero-sum game, which is the – as you say, he could, have, he could have defrauded people. He could have – or he could have hit them. He could have hurt them. He could yeah. have stolen stuff. Could have other a, way. a couple of bully boys. Yeah, he could have uh, extorted tins of, of jam from – or bottle, jars of jam as a way of getting enriching himself. Yeah. But that's presumably not what happened. How could that be? Yep. How could that be? It's as fundamental a mystery as there is anywhere in economics. And uh, yeah, you're right. And we so misunderstand it that we almost always get it wrong and try to prevent it. You and I before talk, have talked about price gouging and the people who tried to bring ice to Raleigh. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to just stop the podcast here and just leave it up. You know, is there a better test of whether people grasp the economic way of thinking than, than this one? Yeah. So here's the test. We're, we're not going to stop the conversation, but you might want to hit pause. Yeah. If you've taken economics um, or whether you've just been a listener for a while, the question is, what's wrong with this picture? A lot of people would say, clearly this priest is somehow defrauding people because by definition, there's a fixed amount of stuff. No one could, could create more stuff than there, than there physically is. It's just been rearranged by these exchanges, and yet people voluntarily did it, and yet – they're better off. How could that be? It's either fraud or exploitation or some clearly, if not illegal, then immoral action. You have 30 minutes and one side – I think one side of a page would be sufficient if you can write small enough. On the other hand, it's going to take us about 40 minutes perhaps to really do justice to it. So let's – let's those of you who, who don't want to pause um, or if those of you coming back from pausing – Let's carry on. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see if we can do this. So I, I, I tried to work on this problem and found a passage in one of, one of my favorite writers, Frederick Bastiat, that I'd forgotten about. So in the, the wonderful essay, That Which is Seen and That Which is Not Seen, mm-hmm. section six of, of that essay is called The Intermediaries. And I did ask a couple people who spoke French, and it would be perfectly plausible to translate that instead as the middleman, because that's really what he's talking about. Yeah. And the way Bastiat poses the problem is this. There's many hungry people in England don't have nearly enough farms in England to be able to, England and, and France to a lesser extent, but, but in England mostly, um, in England to be able to produce enough wheat. There's a lot of wheat in the United States, and there's a lot of wheat in uh, Crimea, in the Ukraine. And Bustier's writing. This is, this is in before 18- communism, yeah. Well, Bustier's <laughs> writing in 1848, 1850, mm-hmm. and France, France had already been pretty special. So, yeah, that's right. The U- Ukraine was a, a country that's a big, uh, a big wheat producer. So, we have this problem. There's a bunch of hungry people in one place, and there's a lot of wheat in these other two places. And we might wonder why there is so much wheat if there aren't that many people. But presumably they're producing it in hopes that somehow they can solve this problem of getting their wheat to the hungry people and making money. So that the farmers have a problem and the hungry people in England have a problem. Now Bastiat suggests, let me, let me just read it, and then he's talking here about France. When the hungry stomach is at Paris and corn which can satisfy it is at Odessa, the suffering cannot cease till the corn is brought into contact with the stomach. <laughs> you have to like Bastiat. He's a just wonderful He's writer. Awesome. Yeah. There are three means by which this contact may be affected. First, the famished men may go themselves and fetch the corn. Second, they may leave this task to those to whose trade it belongs. Third, they may club together and give the office in charge to public functionaries. And that's the brilliant part. He brings up the third, which is the answer most people have to the problem of the middleman. So we probably all agree we can't each go get it ourselves, you know, rent a wagon, cross all of Europe, and, and take it to the Crimea and bring back enough for our needs for the next week. That, that won't work. But if we leave it to the second, which is there are these people who trade, how do we know for sure that we're going to be ripped off? And the answer is profit. These people aren't doing it out of love for you, Russ. Well, maybe for you, but not out of love for me. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. 
So they're doing it for profit. Obviously, we can do it more cheaply then because all we have to do is have the state be the intermediary, the middleman. And Get rid of the, the state, profit. The state won't take any profit, and they'll do it cheaper. Perfect. So there's the answer. We can get rid of the middleman by having the state do it. Sarcasm off. Okay, for those of you who are at home. You know, I, it's not obvious that that's false. I think that's right. the second no, mystery. It seems, it seems like an appealing solution. And, and as I, long as because profits have to be greater than zero. I think we all agree profits have to be greater than zero to get the private, the, the private middleman to go do it. So I'm actually not being sarcastic. I'm trying to raise it in a sense that to many people seems like a syllogism. Since the the private middleman is going to insist on profits, and should in some sense, because that's what motivates him, then obviously we we all agree that it's too expensive for us to do as individuals. But if we have the state do it, since the state will not be motivated by profit, all all they're going to do is do it by cost, it will be cheaper, and we'll all be better off. And the question is, what's wrong, if anything, with that argument? I should mention, by the way, that I'm, I'm hoping this will air, barring technological problems, on October 27th, and I will be uh, debating Bill McKibben on October 29th at the University of Vermont, uh, I think in the late afternoon, on the topic of buy local. And, of yeah. course, a fourth solution, which Bashjot could never have imagined, but is the solution that is being advocated by many, is that England should grow more corn. Yeah, you should, in, in your garden. Yeah, in the back uh, or around the countryside, uh, less fewer smokestacks, more cornfields, yeah, uh, or more wheat fields, as the case may be. So, if anyone's <laughs> right, interested, I, you're quite right. That is a corollary. Uh, if anyone's interested in that debate, uh, please, you're, you're welcome. But it is a, a fourth version. But I love this. This is is a stark example of the problems people see with commercialism, with trade, and and the merchant life which is ignoring the buy-local option, the intermediary, the, the middleman's taking of a slice uh, above and beyond the cost, which is what profit is all about, um, could certainly be eliminated by a more uh, benevolent provider of the service, perhaps the state or a charity, that would bring the corn from Ukraine to um, from Odessa to Paris. And so what What's the problem with that, and if the, any? The fascinating thing is that there's two incentives that middlemen have, and we're only looking at the one about profit, which is actually the trivial one, because profits are going to be driven close to zero by competition. The real thing that middlemen do is find ways to reduce cost. The main thing that they work on is think, darn it, out of just greed and self-interest, how can I construct a system by which I can transport this corn from Ukraine to England? How can I get it there as cheaply as possible? Does the state have anything like that same incentive? And the answer is no, absolutely not. And and in fact, has no access to the kind of information that would be necessary to try to construct this. It's the Hayekian knowledge problem uh, uh, in a microcosm of it. The middleman doesn't just reduce cost. That's the most important probably the most dramatic and important thing, but the middleman provides a whole range of other services. The middleman knows where the best corn is, where the tastiest corn is, the cleanest corn. Not, not all of them do. Some of the no, middlemen don't know, and they will go bankrupt. And they won't do a good job yep, and have, will have a harder gone. time making money. They also know where the customers are, what the customers like, yep. um, and how the customers like the good provided. They don't. Yep. People don't just want uh, – not everybody wants the 
20-pound bag of corn. Some want it in different shapes and sizes. They, they want different varieties because yep. they make different kinds of bread. So it, 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 it has almost nothing to do with profit. That's a, it's a complete red herring. It's true that they are motivated by profits. But as enough of this is done, the main effect is to improve the variety and quality of the service or the good, and the cost is driven way, way down. So there's a, a huge benefit that I'm really not sure why we ignore so steadfastly. You're saying it's unclear why we missed that benefit. Yeah, it's not clear why the, all the arguments against middlemen missed that. And I, I guess, it, it, since I was just reading Bastiat, it's because of the thing that's not seen. We don't see how difficult it would be uh, to, to provide all of those services if we had to pay for them themselves. So that, well, that's what I, I like about Bastiat, was he said that if, if you want to ask the state to do this, they're going to they can't possibly do nearly as good a job. Yeah, let me challenge you though. Uh and I I have my own answer. I'm curious to see what yours would be, but let me challenge you. So what we need to do then is just let the middlemen do their magic for a while. And once they've discovered the cheapest way to provide the good, then we shut them down and let the government use that technology and that mechanism because the provision of that you know, it's really what I love about this is really a couple types of information. There's the information we've been looking at, which is the preferences of consumers, the nature of the providers, but there's also this information about technology and which is what I, the way I think of the cost part of it. What's the cheapest way to get the good from A to B, from Odessa to Paris or Odessa to London? And, the, and once they've figured that out, all we have to do then is shut them down. Copy it, have the government use that exact same mechanism, and then we'll be fine because then they'll cut the profit out and the good will be cheaper. We'll be better off. It'll actually be cheaper by whatever profits so, are being earned. So what's the fallacy? Costs are dynamic. Yep. And – You're so good, Mike. And I was afraid. I was a little nervous bringing that up because I thought, what if he – it'll be awkward. It? It'll well, be awkward, al- yeah. You can always edit. I know. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd protect you. Don't worry. Thank you. Well, Actually, we've edited already. I don't want to – Yeah. We, for all the guests now, you know, for all the listeners now, we've already – Anyway, go ahead. I don't know what happened to us, Russ. We used to be so good. <laughs> Not only are costs dynamic, but the my need to keep costs down at every step. I mean, su- suppose I'm driving a wagon, and it's 5.30, and I'm kind of tired, and there's a nice hotel. It's pretty expensive, but I've got the credit card. I, I'm going to stop for the night if I work for the state. But... So it's true that there's no profits, but there's no reason to keep costs down. But if I'm working for myself, I'm going to go till 10 o'clock and I'm going to sleep under the wagon. And because I, the reason I do that is so I can chill, sell my corn cheaper than anybody else, and that's how I make profits. So there, there are huge differences, not only in dynamic in the sense that hard to calculate. So the, the, the man of system answer, what Adam Smith would call the, Adam, that the, the man of, of system, would make exactly the objection that you make, and in a way it's correct in the kind of static world that has nothing to do with economics, not even the simple economics of transporting corn to market. Because, well, it's just a technical problem. Yeah, it's it's not just a technical problem. Yeah, because, well, the other point, of course, which is there's all kinds of senses, as you point out, in which the, the cost structure is dynamic. One is, is that they can all, they're going to find ways to make it continually cheaper, which yeah. the profit uh, – the profit the profit driven merchant will find ways to con- continually improve the the cost dynamic whereas the state has little or no incentive no. 
But there's also the fact that price, relative prices change, yep. and the wagon might be the cheapest method now because uh, oats are cheap and it's okay to use a horse, but when gasoline gets uh, cheaper, you use a, you use a car. So there, there, there's a, all kinds of complexity to this that would be difficult to um, produce without the incentives. Yeah, I think not just difficult. What you said about Hayek was right. Not just difficult, impossible. impossible yeah. I, I want to mention something that came to my mind while you're talking about it. When you asked – Somewhat rhetorically, but also uh, uh, literally, why is this missed in the discussion of middlemen? And you gave the Bastiat answer, which I think is is obviously correct, which is that it's seen and unseen. But I, I want to raise a possible reason why it's so hard to see. It is, it's a generic category of economic complexity that I think people have trouble grasping. We look at the world around us at a point in time – and we see a set of still snapshots, a set of stills, when in fact the movie version is so much more informative of the reality. So at a point in time, it's tempting to say, well, we'll just get the middlemen, cut them out, and save the money from the profits that they're stealing from folks because they've already revealed the best way to do it. Yeah. Missing the fact that the best way, as you point out, is not a technical problem but something that had to emerge from trial and error – uh, research, uh, mistakes, failure, uh, success, and that if we'd seen that history and then what comes afterward, the improvements and responses to relative prices, we would see that this process is not just a technical problem like finding the uh, square root of 64 or the solution to a quadratic equation. It's just something you just have to set your mind to uh, and, and figure it out. It's it's not of that nature. Nope, and no one mind could figure it out. Many, many different minds are working on it, little separate pieces of it. And it's very difficult to aggregate all the separate pieces unless you have some mechanism like a market that, that puts them together seamlessly. Not always to everyone's benefits because it's certainly possible for middlemen, speculators, uh, to make mistakes. So the question is, how would we – And, we were and to, take advantage of people, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Exploit people in ways that we're, we're kind of glossing over. We, yeah. we should raise the possibility that middlemen don't just take a small profit in a world sometimes without – if there's not enough competition, they might make a very large profit. And they have every incentive to try to prevent profit, to prevent competition. Correct. So the thing that, 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 that to be aware of is at the same time that I'm celebrating this process of the man gear, the merchant – they're desperately spending a lot of effort trying to form guilds. And make as much money as possible. And it turns out it's a whole lot if you can prevent people from competing with you. So they're doing awful things. They're herming consumers all the time. Motivated by profit and, and self-interest. Exactly the same. So the, and in fact, it's, there's no way of telling for the middleman whether one of these is morally better than the other because both, both produce, produce profit. So in terms of maximization, I'm going to focus on the activity where I can get the highest profit. And if government is soft and permeable, and I can either make bribes or fees or whatever you want to call them, merchants and middlemen are going to focus on trying to protect themselves from competition, which harms consumers. So what do we do? It, I think we've come a long way towards recognizing that allowing middlemen or producers, retailers of, of all kinds – have to be prevented from acting on this impulse. But it's awfully tempting because they make arguments that sound like the public good. So Ford and General Motors say, well, all these darn Japanese cars, they're, they're, harming, uh, they're harming our workers. 
and so we have to have protectionism. We have to have uh, union work rules that prevent new labor from coming in. So middlemen would like to have their profit margins protected. And one thing, one way to get profits is to reduce costs and provide services more cheaply. And the other is to try to prevent other people from competing with you. Are you comparing now um, a uh, car manufacturer to a middleman? Well, I'm thinking of because uh, in some sense, all they are doing, <laughs> they just take raw materials and just move them around, rearrange them. They're just assembling something that other people have already created, right? You could argue that. Oh, sure. And the 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 the, the, the retail process is is sort of separate. If I'm a retailer. Um, I could sell something called cars that I could purchase from all sorts of different companies. But it would be nice if I could say, if I could find a way to have them only from just a couple companies, because then we can all make more money by restricting the amount that's available. So the question is, what is, what I wanted to try to think about was, what is the role of the middleman now? And one of the things, the most pernicious form of the the, the, the profit-seeking of the middleman that we have seen in this financial crisis is not that they're trying to protect themselves from competition. It's that they're trying to protect themselves from risk. Explain. Well, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, two large uh, quasi-governmental agencies, were tasked with trying to, and your, your listeners can't see, but I'm making air quotes, they were supposed to rationalize the financial market by buying up bundles of mortgages or mortgage-backed securities, the individual value of which was hard to judge, but together they have all these offsetting kinds of risk, and that way we could ensure a smooth transition of large parts of the American population into home ownership, which has many benefits. Now, let me make an analogy. One of the things middlemen do, and that, that, that original thing that I read about from uh, – 10,000 from, from 1,050, you know, a thousand-year-old description was sometimes my ship hits the rocks. And so I'm, I'm invoking risk as an explanation for why I deserve some profits because I, I, it wasn't easy to bring this stuff to you. I had to, I had to have some risk. The way our financial markets worked were if you, and remember financial markets, this retrading of these assets is, a, is just a kind of middleman. I'm not improving the product. I'm just moving it around trying to buy cheap and sell dear. So let's suppose I go to Las Vegas and I put a lot of money on black 32 on the roulette wheel. Well, if I win, I get to keep it, and I'm a genius. But if I lose, I lose the money, and so I'm judicious about this. I think, well, you know, I'm, I could win if I put it on black 32 and it comes up, but it's likely that I would lose, and so I'm going to be more careful than that. I'm not going to just go off on some rash uh, risk-taking. I'm, I'm going to do this in a way where I'm likely to make money. Or we could have a government agency that says, if you hit black 32, you get to keep your winnings. But if you lose, we'll buy that ticket at face value. And maybe we'll just buy it. We'll buy a whole bunch of them. But well, here's, and here's the weird part about it, if I could just intervene for please. a sec. The politicians who created that uh, very unhealthy set of incentives were aware at the time that it was unhealthy. And so they said, you know – 
we like this system as a way to make sure you play roulette, but we're not going to let you play the way you might want to prefer if those were the only rules. So we're going to have a oversight and make sure you behave prudently, et cetera. And for a while, uh, I'd say in the period, say, 68 to early 90s, Fannie and Freddie played by the rules that the regulators put in place, and they pretty much – helped make that mortgage market a little friendlier than it might have been otherwise, and it worked pretty well. It yep. was pretty stable. It, but it, does, it, it, it doesn't take one. It always takes two. You raise a very important point. It always takes two regulations. First thing we do is we're going to say we're going to take some of the, the risk out of this, but that has pernicious behavior effects. So we'll have another regulation that says, but you can't do what you would really want to do given this first set of incentives. Right. So it takes two. And the second one, I think we lost sight of the link between them. So the, well, the political, one, you know, because there's the third party, which is the politician. And the politician, as we've talked about many times here, and you and I have talked about explicitly here as well, politician has his or her own incentives. They're not the same as the body politics, um, the general public, mine and yours. We like to think sometimes that that's the case. Uh, most of us have grown up out of that, uh, I hope, by listening to this show. But, but many people out in the world think, well, the regulator will just take care of the public will, the general interest, and will make sure. by public interest. Yeah. yeah. But in fact, of course, the regulator uh, is upon – of the politician. The politician is striving to get reelected, and the politician's incentives are not always aligned any more than Fannie and Freddie's were. No, and, and over time, we chipped away at this, this second regulation, which was a way of compensating for the known behavioral problems of the first regulation that said, we'll reduce the risk that you're exposed to. And so when, when people say that this was a mistake of pure markets, we were two sets of regulations away from pure markets where I say, if I lose, I lose. Well, that's true for Fannie and Freddie. I, I think there's um, – the failure of Fannie and Freddie and the end result of a few weeks, maybe a few months ago now, that they were put into conservatorship, which we talked about in a recent podcast with Arnold Kling, that clearly is not a market failure or a problem of markets, or a problem of, of laissez-faire. That was a government-created, quasi-public, quasi-private, schizophrenic, inherently unstable thing that fell apart. Yeah. Uh, the deeper question, and I don't know if you want to get into this, and I'll, I'll be happy to defer it to another podcast. Uh, the deeper question is why that rippled through the rest of the financial sector in such a systemic way. And I think that's a much more complicated and uh, – and difficult and important question, although this one's important enough because I think most people have trouble in, you know, understanding it. It's not being written about very much. And I, I think the answer is, and this, this does kind of take us back to the middleman question, there was a sense that they could change the products and create more value in a way that was something like our discussion of the POW camp. Because remember, something yep. magic happened in the POW camp. There was only a certain amount of stuff and yet by rearranging it so that each person got something that they preferred to what they had before, the total level of value, utility, satisfaction was raised, maybe dramatically, by letting people exchange. And what they did, remember, was they broke up these parcels into their constituent parts. Very so, much like 
when you say when you were saying make that sentence, I stopped you. I'm interrupting. I'm sorry. Are you referring to the priest or to Wall Street? Because but it applies to both. I'm thinking of derivatives. Okay, but it also applies to the parcel and Absolutely. the package that comes it's, into it's the, the prison. The, the analogy camp. I'm making is to the Red Cross parcel. They go open ahead, it so up. Go ahead. They break it up in, in different parts. Rather than saying let's exchange Red Cross parcels, that makes no sense. Because we both some, got the same thing. Some right, but some people like carrots more. So when we break them open then we can take the different parts of this, and we're all better off. So I think what happened on Wall Street was an analogy, which turns out to be not exactly correct, was let's break these complex securities into their constituent parts, where this is the part where there's changes in equity. This is the part where you could buy some part of the risk. This is the really safe part. This is the part that's really risky but high return. But And we'll have these models, the Black-Scholes model, and other thing that will, when we break it up, we'll actually have a way to predict the value of these things. So we'll make a market that didn't exist before, and that's what middlemen do. They weren't changing any of the stuff, the physical stuff. They were changing the, the, the nature of the things being exchanged by breaking open these parcels, not, not the Red Cross parcels, but breaking open these, these uh, what, what before a share of stock has many different possible constituent parts. And that's why they're called derivatives, because these assets, these complex new assets, derive, their value derived from some component of the underlying asset. Well, when they sold them, we didn't, we didn't actually understand the pricing system very well. Nobody does. We have models. But it, it's very difficult to have a market in something so so complex when what you're talking about is the right to risk. So if I'm buying options, buying or selling options, uh, the, the Black-Scholes model says that, that high risk is actually better because it's likely at some point to be above the price where if I cash it in, I, I make money. So having it vary all around was a good thing. Well, it turned out that we didn't didn't understand that very well, and they were tied together in ways that the Red Cross parcel was actually separable. Well, I want to I want to I want to go back to the to the prisoner war camp because I think a lot of our listeners, including myself, are going to struggle with this um, this sudden leap into into derivatives. So l- let me just make try to keep the analogy going from the prisoner war camp. For a, for a minute, and then we'll go back to the to the Wall Street part. When you take, I get my parcel in uh, the camp, and I've got cigarettes and chocolate and meat, et cetera, jam. You've got yours, so we all understand that we can be better off by breaking them up and trading the constituent pieces rather than parcels uh, writ large. Now that. What's wrong? Is there anything wrong with that? Is Not there okay. any risk? Is there any risk involved there? Because yes. I think I think there is, yeah, they're, they're, and I think it's important to see in that even that incredibly simple setting, people made mistakes, quote, got taken advantage of, lost value because they made exchanges at prices that weren't quote. I mean, the reason I'm, I started thinking about the simpler example is you said for a minute that, that people didn't understand the the uh, exact the real value of things. One of the things that comes out in the Radford article about the prisoner war camp that's so fascinating is the discomfort people had with the prices. And in particular, uh, he points out that cigarettes became the currency uh, while there was also barter where you'd trade jam for meat or vice versa, you know, jam for something else. Uh, after a while, for obvious reasons of convenience, and a lot of what we're talking about here in both examples is transaction costs. Uh, 
It's hard to know what's out there. It's hard to know what's available. And once you do, it's hard to know what a good price is. So you have to spend resources and time. And what the middleman's doing to a large extent is, one, saving that time and making the whole system work more effectively. And how that happens is through arbitrage, which is mysterious, as we've started to to talk about earlier. But you could make a mistake. You could think that the price of of a tin of beef was 20 cigarettes when in fact it was it was only 15. And, and what you, do you mean by the price? I mean, you're raising something important, but what do you mean by the price? Because after all, if you have a tin of beef and I have cigarettes and we, we agree that I'll give you 20 cigarettes for it, that is the price. I'm not making the, a mistake. Exactly. That is the price. But it turned out, and this is what is so uh, – is mysterious about markets. It turned out there was a guy one barracks over who would have let me have the meat for 15 cigarettes. So I blundered. In the sense that you could have gotten it more cheaply, but... I still was you, better off. You did make a mistake because it would have cost you the equivalent of seven cigarettes effort to go and find out that information. Perhaps. Or perhaps the guy's right next door and I just, I'm so hungry, well, I'm but so on desperate. Average, an expected value. You must think that or you would, have, you would have walked around. Yeah, maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe wow. I'm scared. Maybe I'm really hungry. And when you said 20, I jumped at it and I made a, mis- quote, mistake in the sense that Next door was a guy for 15. As you point out, I'm better off with, with the trade than I was not making the trade, but there was a better trade available. And, and it, so as you recall, in, in the, what, what ended up happening was they posted a bulletin board that made it really easy to find out what the, and I'm using the definite article, the price was. Because, yeah, because so after I, I a could, while. I could find out. I, I didn't have to go talk to anybody. I could walk to this one central location, and just like the big board on Wall Street, I could find out what the price not of the stock, but of the little treacle, was. And so I didn't make those mistakes. So I guess I was skipping ahead to the point where the market had developed in the prison camp to such an extent that there was a single price, an agreed-upon single price on any given day for each of these commodities, and so no such mistakes were made. But as Radford points out, and this is a a human interest, uh, a fascinating sociological point that interacts with the economics, as Radford points out, when there would be a sudden increase in the supply of one item or a sudden decrease, it could be in the currency itself in cigarettes or it could be the availability of, of jam, the, the price would change. What used to be, quote, the fair or common or usual price of beef, say, would change if all of a sudden the Red Cross packets didn't have as much beef in them as they had before. Or you had a period of deflation, like you said, where people smoked up their cigarettes and the, the Red Cross packets were delayed. Right, And so what some, what did some greedy people do, they would buy up a bunch of tins of beef, knowing that at some point the price was going to change, basically hoarding. They were accused of hoarding. And speculating. And, right, and reselling it. Now, what that actually did, of course, was we're saving beef at a time when it's plentiful, and they're going to resell it at a time when it's rare. So they're actually they're exchanging. They're exchanging with themselves at two different points in time. So they're not finding one guy who wants it and one guy who'll sell it. They're saying, I know that a week from now I'll be able to sell it at a different price. So I'll store it and I'll accept the opportunity cost of what it would have cost. You know, the, I, I have this invested, so I don't, I'm not smoking cigarettes. I'm not using it for something else. They're actually providing a service because they're, they're, they're hoarding against a future scarcity. But they made money by doing it. Yeah, which makes people uneasy. But even the simpler point, which is I think relevant partly for this Wall Street version of this, which is people had in their mind that because after a while, a certain 
price emerge, say, for beef of 20 cigarettes, if that price changed and, say, went to 27 or 25, people would get angry because yeah. they'd say, that's not the right price. The right price is 20. And it's, it's an ancient doctrine, the, the, the Aristotelian doctrine of just price. Thomas Aquinas talks about it in Summa Theologica in question 73 and 75. There's this, this idea that things have an underlying nature or telos, and that, that determines what their exchange rates are. So Aristotle, in the, the first two books of the politics, talks about this exchange problem and commensurability a lot. So we all understand what the real price is. How dare you charge a price different from it? And as you point out, the answer is, is that they're motivated by profit. People will do that. But and in, provide a service by doing exactly. it. It's not just neutral. So let's go to Wall Street now. So you've got these folks who are unbundling these complex uh, mortgage derivatives, these mortgage-backed securities that are uh, then put into these more complex packages called derivatives, collateralized debt obligations, I think is the, is the fancier name. No wonder you stand alone at parties. Yeah. And uh, why, do you think, why do you think they spun out of control? Because nobody knew the right price. There was no similar mechanism like there was because early on in the prison camp, nobody knew what the price was, and probably there was less trade because I'm thinking, you know, I might be able to get a better price. But pretty soon it became routinized, and there was a, a board where I could go and find out what the price was. And if you offered me a price different from that, I'd take it if it were higher, but why would you? And if you offer me a price less than that, I won't take it. And so exchanges are easy. Nobody gets ripped off. We, we never got out of the first stage with financial derivatives. Well, I've heard that, and I, I, there's a certain appeal of that argument. Let me give you two cultural remarks I've heard related to that, and then I, I want to challenge it because I don't, think it's, I don't think it's the whole story. When I ask someone in the business why they would continue to buy and exchange these things when they weren't sure what they were worth <laughs> – the person said to me, well, the alternative was to be a shoe salesman. I mean, yeah. that was the game. Yeah. That was where the action was. If you were a trader on Wall Street, if you were running a hedge fund, that's what you did. And the prices and, were going up. You could make money by doing it. And it looked – right. It turned out to be okay for a while. A second person I talked to inside the business who runs a hedge fund said, well, I never bought those. Why not? I said – he said, I could never figure out what they were worth. Yeah. Well, he was a smart one, uh, presumably. Well, you made a really important point. It wasn't necessary that everybody did. As long as some did, then we have a problem. But here's the claim that I hear that I find troubling. Because if that were the case, if it were the case that these complex instruments got traded, the price was erratic or unpredictable or – I mean I, I, don't know, I don't know what it means when you say that they weren't the vet, no one knew what the value was. They don't know what the value of a tin of jam is. Yep. Uh, so what difference does it make? It's no different than 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 jam in the camp and derivatives in, on Wall Street. There's no just price. So what's the big deal that there wasn't a, quote, real, fair, just, actual, value-backed price? What's the difference? The, the argument that I'm making is that for financial derivatives, we were in the situation of the, the, the early – undeveloped market where I might be able to get a better price for it. So I, I, would, I would buy it only for the sake of speculation. And as long as the trend was going up, we could all make money. It actually didn't matter what I paid for it. But we didn't have any good gauge of what the price of this was going to be if prices stable, stabilized. And quite a few companies 
uh, ended up with extremely long positions. Meaning, the, explain. I mean that they they had they had they. What is a long position? Their portfolio had far more of these assets than prudence would have dictated. But since it was difficult, suppose I and I have a bundle of a thousand of these, and I'm thinking of selling it to AIG or Wachovia or some bank that at this point is pretty sound. Well, they look at it and it has a face value. It has a, it has a price. And some of them are probably worth exactly what they seem to be, and others are not. But I, I hope that in the aggregate, they'll all, it'll, the, all the variances will cancel out. The problem is that if housing prices just stop increasing, they don't have to go down. If housing prices just stop increasing, then I no longer have any margin for error. And there's an interconnectedness in the financial system where if A owes money to B, owes money to C then C can have a perfectly sound portfolio, except that now B, Bank B, goes bankrupt. And so they fall like dominoes. So I, I, I agree with you that many companies didn't buy these. Many companies said, I'm not going to buy that because I have no it's, idea it's what it's worth. It's a sucker's game. But it's like the guy who says, blacks come up 17 times in a row in roulette. So 18th, the 18th time is even more likely because obviously there's a trend. Yeah. That would be really stupid. Everybody understands on the roulette wheel that that's a – not everybody. Uh, rational people understand on an honest roulette wheel that that's a bad, that's a bad know, strategy. I, most people ask for the pattern of the wheel. Yeah. They, they, now, most people who play roulette, I admit I don't play roulette for just that reason. But uh, they ask. What, what's what, the last four? Yeah, yeah. What's, what's been going on? But, of course, in housing markets, there could be some real – that there could be a pattern, there could be a trend, and of course, for ten years there was one. It went up every year. The trend is an ex, an ex ante thing. There, 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 there may have been, but ex post, when we look at it and say, "Oh, there it was," it, it's if if I flip a coin twenty five times in a row and the first ten are heads, it isn't really a trend at all. It just looks like one. Correct, but it could be one in housing. It, it appeared to be one in housing. I don't think it was. Turned out not to be true. Yeah, but. Okay, so some people – I lost the train of thought here. Tell, where were we? Well, the, the, what we were talking about was the, the people who, who bought and sold these securities were bundling them and reselling them to other banks that may not have recognized that some – the, the metaphor people use is, is toxic, that there were these, these toxic assets – they were they were rebundled in a way that made it very difficult to, to tell, even for a solvent bank, if they actually had enough money to be able to pay their obligations. I don't know if that's true. I, I've heard that claim, and and the claim is is that you know when you have ten thousand mortgages or a thousand mortgages, you can't go to every house and see what's going on. You know, you can't inspect the property, you can't interview the 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 borrower, and so you really have no idea. Which raises the question of why they paid for them in the first place. Because, because prices were going up. Well, I don't think that's the whole story. I think at the same time they were being rated by the rating agency as AAA. Yeah. And the reason they were rated as AAA, I think, and here's I think where the the real hard part of this story is is coming in. Um, I was told again. I, I can't tell if it's true. But I was told that the rating agencies used very conservative default rates. They used the default rates of the Great Depression. Now, I don't know if that's true, but let's say it is true because I think it's possible that what went wrong here for the people who held these assets isn't that they didn't know what was in them. It, it was this systemic issue, this interaction between uh, who owed me money and who I was counting on so that I could pay the people who, who I owed money to. Yeah. 
what Arnold Kling has called, I thought I was, you know, when Arnold Kling talks about it, he says something along the lines of, I thought I was insured, and I was. I didn't realize that my insurer might be bankrupt. I was sort of naively but usually correctly assuming that my insurance company would be extremely cautious. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's more than that, and I, and I want to come back to this uh, middleman discussion in, in a different setting. In in 2000 or so, the year 2000, the internet was a really hot commodity, and people were raising money based on business plans that were unrealistic. And a lot of people knew that, and they invested anyway because they figured, well, along the way, they're going to make it, the stock's going to go up, and I'll just get out beforehand. Other people said, you know, this is a sucker's game; it's going to pop. Not all these firms can be profitable. Uh, it's a mistake. Other people said, I'm going to pick the right one. It's true that all 10 of these firms in this portfolio can't make money. I'm going to pick the one that's going to make – that's going to be the profitable one. I'm going to pick Amazon, which at the time, of course, people said, oh, they're never going to make any money. No, it doesn't make any sense. You it can't, make, can't make money doing that. But some people said, well, they are the one. I'm going to bet on them. So there were all these different strategies that people had. And other people said, ooh, this is scary. The, you know, the price earnings ratios here are unrealistic. It's never going to be they, – they, they have no revenues. How could they yeah, possibly this is not be profitable? Gonna, exactly. I'm out of this market. I'm, I'm not – this is, this is a fool's game. I'm out. So people adopted all kinds of strategies with respect to the internet, these internet public offerings. And people chose different risk tolerances, different consumption of risk. And then it popped. Again, whether you want to call it a bubble, I don't like calling it a bubble. I like the idea that it was hard to anticipate which firms were going to be profitable. There were a lot of rolling of the dice. And let's su- suffice it to say a lot of these firms really, of course, could not all be profitable. And the ones who turned out to be profitable, such as Amazon, those paid off. The other ones lost all their money, were totally wiped out. And we saw a whole range of personal reactions to this uh, this this uh, unfolding of events. Some people made a lot of money and got out before the prices fell. Yeah. Some people never got out. Uh, they made a lot of money, and then they lost it all back. Yeah. Other people invested at the last minute thinking they were missing out, wiped, got wiped out, never made the money in the first place, just had a huge net loss. Some people stayed out, etc. But it didn't destroy anything. A bunch of firms that were supposed to be – and they were just shuffling paper. All this internet stuff yeah. was a minute – was the the financial part of the internet was no different than these middlemen stories we're telling. It was a bunch of people trading pieces of paper on the stock market, which at the time, again, looked like a zero-sum game. In fact, created some extraordinary, wonderful companies. A bunch of them didn't make it. They're gone. The market purged them out. Why didn't that happen? I'm not – I don't think this is an answerable, easily answered question. I'm just going to raise it and, and let you speculate. Why didn't that happen here? Why didn't the firms who made the mistakes, who bought these pieces of paper of uncertain value, who sometimes overpaid a trem- by a tremendous amount relative to the risk, why didn't they just go bankrupt? And that would be the end of the story like many other financial disasters or asset uh, you know, uh, manias where people thought this is never going to go down. OK, they're wrong. It does go down. A bunch of people lose their shirts. End of story. And yet here we have totally destroyed the entire financial system in response to this, and we're starting from scratch. I, I, I think that's an interesting question. Why, what, what, the, but maybe we're sampling on the dependent variable. The reason we're talking about this one is that this is one of those very rare cases, very, very rare cases where no one, not enough people 
stayed separate, and the interconnectedness. I mean, the, the argument that, that you said Kling made does seem like a sound one to me, that I, I'm insured. But when my insurance, in whatever form that takes, uh, disappears, then I'm unexpectedly insolvent, and it, 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 it goes along like, like dominoes. There, there was one company that I wanted to look at, and exactly the dot-com crash was where I wanted to try to end up with our discussion of middlemen. Because there was a company, it was started by a guy named um, Louis Borders, the guy who co-founded uh, Borders Bookstore. And Borders Bookstore online and, and bricks and mortar too is very successful. They, they've made a lot of money. But he started a company they're called... They're in trouble right now. Well, they're, they're, at least they, they, they had a business model that wasn't impossible. He started a company, though, called Webvan. Do you remember Webvan? Is that what, the groceries? It was groceries. And what they wanted to do was eliminate the middleman. What they, what they said is that they will, you won't have to have this big grocery store. Um, what we'll do is, is eliminate all of these middleman profits. We'll, we'll, uh, they wanted to, to, to work in 26 different cities. They bought huge amounts of warehouses and trucks, really high-quality computer servers, and were convinced that, because they had a business model where they did have a revenue source, they would deliver it to your house within a 30-minute window. And basically their motto was, we'll eliminate the middleman. Well, they went bankrupt within three or four years. They never came close to, to, to profitability. They were, they were losing 90% of their, well, they, they were losing 300% of their profits per year. Uh, they placed a, an order for a, a billion dollars to, to build warehouses. So they absolutely lost their shirt. You can't, it's very difficult to eliminate the middleman in even a, a, an obvious retailing service like grocery. Now, there, there are, there's, there's NetGrocer. There are some where you can buy canned goods and things like that, but not your entire, your entire set of, of, of groceries. A niche. So the, the, I think a lot of people, when they, when they think about that era, think about dot-coms of the sort that never had a revenue source. This, these guys had a revenue source. People were going to pay groceries, and they were going to eliminate the middleman. It's just really hard to eliminate the middleman because this was an actual test of, of can, we, can we get rid of the middleman and make money because each of these people along the way are going to make their separate profit. We're going to cut all of that out, and we're going to get those profits. Everybody's going to be better off, and it, it absolutely crashed and burned. And it's a beautiful example because they were in competition directly with the middleman-designed middleman. structure, which they should have just been able to, in theory, been able to um, – Take to the cleaners. And that's the cool thing about theory. We can sit in a room and say, well, there's all these wasted costs. We should be able to do better than that. And the problem is it actually turns out to be empirically true or false that you can do better than that. That's what the market tells you. And there's almost no way of telling that unless people try the experiment. Because we might still today say maybe this would work, and maybe it would. Maybe with a slightly different business model it would. But and, of course, the, the middleman is eliminated in lots of cases. I mean the beauty of this is that this is not uh, a defensive middleman per se, but a defensive middleman when they are more productive than the alternative. That's, that's the real question. When do we observe middlemen? The answer is we observe middlemen only but always when they're providing a valuable social service. Even because though they, they don't – make e profits by doing it. Even though they don't provide one. At least it's seen. Information. Yeah. Information and organization, which we can't, it's very difficult to price. On the other hand, they also play a role in creating disasters like what we've seen on Wall Street. With 
precisely the same motivation of I'm going to make profits by just buying and selling commodities without improving them. So it's a, it's a very complicated story. Yeah, I think we have much more to learn about the Wall Street story, and I, I hope uh, – I know right now a lot of books are being written about it, and I hope we uncover some of the uh, complexity and make it a little more simple. Unfortunately, it is possible that we will never understand it any more than we uh, understand the Great Depression. I, let me just make a, a side note here about complexity. A number of listeners have asked me to – do a show on the Great Depression, and I, I think we will. We did one with Amity Schles a while back, but I think people want more and more on the economics and you know what caused it, et cetera. And the Great Depression was a, a, a collapse of the, of the economic system, and it, it did recover. But it's remarkable how difficult it is to know as opposed to speculate as to why it collapsed and why it recovered. And people of different ideological biases, people of different methodological biases, people of different economic theory biases have their own story to tell. It's extremely difficult to test those stories against one another because it's an ex post story. It's an ex post after the fact. What can I do to make the facts of the story consistent with my bias, my ideology, my economic theory, et cetera? And we're Good at yeah, we're pretty good together. at that. And the fact is, is that you know, it's you can. A lot of people believe that the Great Depression ended because of Roosevelt, but they're very convincing stories for those of us who are who are prone to them to argue that Roosevelt prolonged the depression because of the increases in uncertainty in the in the economic environment. And similarly, I worry that in today's story of this current financial system or mess we're in, ex post narratives are all over the place. Um, and yet it's extremely difficult to find truth. It's extremely difficult to test in any scientific way as opposed to a fairy tale way uh, as to what actually was the cause. There are so many pieces to the puzzle, and it's going to be a very interesting uh, cultural phenomenon to see how this story uh, changes and evolves over time. But unfortunately, I think it's a very uh, sobering moment for economics because – we're supposed to have a story, and the truth is our stories are very, very incomplete. Uh, macroeconomics has been revealed to, by these events to me to be extremely uh, flimsy. Well, I've, I've actually heard that there's a movement to take back the Nobel Prize that was given for the Black-Scholes model. Yeah, and you could argue – well, a lot of people have argued. Nassim Taleb, a previous guest, has argued that the whole idea of a Nobel Prize in economics uh, – I think it's called in economic science yeah. – is uh, inherently uh, intellectually bankrupt. Well, the, the, here's one thing that economic science does contribute, I think. I think it has a lot to contribute. It's just not what well, it, 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 people think it of, contributes. In a way of summing up what we've said about today, the role of the middleman is really complicated. <laughs> and to be it's able nice. to yeah. shed some light on that complexity and the contributions that are made by allowing and facilitating exchange in ways that aren't obvious until you've thought about it a lot are, are something that economics can teach us. So the, it may not be able to say about what to do, but I think it may tell us something about some of the things not to do. Yeah. So what I worry about is that things in our financial system may be bad, but they're not so bad that a bunch of panicked politicians in an election year can't make them far worse. Yeah, no, this is true. Uh, I, I want to close. I know we're, we're out of time, but I want to close with a um – 
a thought experiment. I want to go back to the to the prisoner war camp, and I want to go back to that priest who's wandering around uh, trading with people and making he them. He calls him the itinerant padre. The itinerant padre wandering around the camp, making deals, and ending up somehow with more stuff than when he started, and people traded with him voluntarily. And how did that happen? And what did he provide of value if there's no extra stuff, and yet somehow people are better off? Because he's getting more than his share now. And he, so something must be wrong. And I think one way to think about – I posed it as a, you know, an exam question earlier. I think one way to help – to begin to think about what really is going on there, to, to pull the veil back so that you can see the unseen, is to imagine what would happen – were people to be forced to exchange only with the person next to them or only once or only with a blindfold or only – we can think about a whole range of limits to trade that would allow people to make some trades. But when we allow everyone to trade and when we allow people to be – what's the word that uh, Radford uses in the article? There's a beautiful British phrase or what I think he calls it sharp dealing. Yeah, right. Sharp practices. Sharp practices, meaning somehow on something's not quite ethical about it. When we allow people to really search for profit, uh, what we do then is we allow the prices to emerge. And without that sharp practice, without those middlemen, prices wouldn't emerge. They would just be, as you said, the price that you paid to the guy next door. Yeah, prices, but, prices would emerge. But they would there, emerge. There'd but, be many of them. But there'd be many of them. And when prices converge, when the emerging prices converge, we – the whole group gains information about scarcity and value. And that, I think, is the key to beginning to understand why that itinerant padre was a public servant despite himself. A really valuable service. So when, when Bastiat says each of us could go and get our own stuff from Crimea, that's true. Each of us could also go and try to figure out what the price should be, but it's really expensive. And so we let someone do it for us, and then we, we may end up complaining because they made money for it. Some people probably make more than it seems like they deserve. It, this does increase the amount of inequality. But each of us gets to make a lot of exchanges at very low cost, relying on a kind of created, spontaneously emerging infrastructure of information that otherwise wouldn't exist. But I think the key is, and, I, and maybe I'm wrong, I haven't thought enough about it, and, I, and this really is why this is such a nice archetypal example. I mean, there's, there's a couple, the, the prisoner war camp. One of the advantages of the example is that nobody's working. Yeah. Nobody's producing. It's just an endowment. It's the kind of classroom exercise it's that a we perfect natural experiment. Yeah, and yet it's but yet it's an experiment. It's not a classroom exercise. It's real. Yeah. If I think if everybody received the same parcel over and over and over again, week after week after week, if no one new came into the camp, then the role of prices is less, much less important. There would become a certain rule of thumb that would emerge. And after a while, middlemen would be less – they would probably die out. Uh, their, they, their value would be much smaller than it, than it would be in a world that is the real world where things are constantly changing. And I want to come back to that dynamism. I think the dynamism that's involved is, um, is, really, is really the key, the fact that the world is not a static place. And that is just one more reason why those snapshots are the wrong way to think about it. You need the movie.
Want to say, say anything else about your ancestors, right? <laughs> the mongers? Um, I, I actually found a family crest of the Mankiers. It's a crow standing on three onions, and uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to mention it anymore. It, it's certainly not going to go up in any sort of place of honor in the Munger house. That's awesome. <laughs> that is really, really awesome. My guest today has been Mike Munger of Duke University. Mike, thanks as always for being part of Econ Talk. It was great. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.